Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 17th episode of this podcast, recorded on Monday, April 24. I normally post episodes every other Wednesday, but this is actually a special bonus episode tied to a major recent news story, since I posted an episode last week and will post one next week. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My guests today are Tom Clare and Libby Locke, two of the nation's leading libel lawyers. They are the founding partners of Clare Locke, one of the country's top defamation law firms, which they launched in 2014 after stepping down as partners of Kirkland & Ellis, now the world's largest and most profitable law firm. Tom and Libby also happen to be married, so they are partners not just in law, but life. They're coming off as a big week. Last Tuesday, their client, Dominion Voting Systems, obtained a $787.5 million settlement from Fox, which Dominion accused of defamation based on false statements made about Dominion's role in the 2020 election. It's believed to be the largest publicly known defamation settlement in history. In our conversation, we discussed the Dominion case, including how they came to get involved, why the settlement was so large, and what it means for First Amendment law. We also talked about their decision to leave Kirkland to launch a boutique firm, why it would be impossible to have a practice like theirs in big law, and the future of New York Times v. Sullivan, the landmark First Amendment case whose viability has been called into question. Without further ado, here's my interview of Tom Clare and Libby Locke. Tom, Libby, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having us, David. Yeah, we're super excited to be here. I'm super excited to be talking to you, especially after the giant settlement you obtained for your client, Dominion Voting Systems, in Dominion v. Fox. But we'll get to that in a second. But again, I'm just so glad to have you on the podcast. I've wanted to have you on even before that case. But then, of course, when that came down, I was all over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to be here. We've known you for a long time, David. And it's nice to be invited on and excited about the opportunity to speak to your audience. Great. So let's start at the beginning. And we'll start with you, actually, Libby, before we dive into current issues or the Dominion case or anything like that. Tell us about your childhood and your upbringing. I like to get a sense of my guests as people. Were there any early indications that you might become a lawyer? <laughs> well, my dad always said I could argue with the stop sign. So that was <laughs> probably the earliest indication. But no, I grew up outside of Atlanta, Georgia. It's a pretty working class family. I have the family of four siblings and no lawyers in our family at all. My dad had a, his own small business, an insurance brokerage. My mom was a pediatric nurse when I was growing up. And so, you know, we were pretty middle class family, but I really had known from a very early age that I wanted to go to law school and be a lawyer. And I devoured every TV show and book I can in my middle and high school years about the law. 
everything from, you know, law and order and Judge Judy to John Locke's two treatises on governments. I mean, <laughs> I think it was his last name that drew me to the right. <laughs> Any relation? I'm told there is, but I haven't actually proven it myself. So who knows? You know, I went to a public high school outside of Georgia, little known facts, the same high school that's both Zach Brown from the Zach Brown Band and Marjorie Taylor Greene went to. So (laughs) some famous folks for very different reasons coming out of my former high school. But it was a small town north of Atlanta. And at the time I was in high school, it wasn't a populous county. It was one of two high schools in the county and not a ton of educational opportunities. It wasn't one of these fancy private schools in Atlanta. I think there were three AP classes that were offered in the entirety of the high school. And I took all of them by the time I was a junior in high school. And there wasn't much left for me to take in high school. And so I actually, to my parents' credit, they told me, look, Libby, if you apply somewhere and you get in and you want to go, we will support it. And so I drove myself down to a Barnes and Nobles when I was 16, 17, and I bought one of those, at the time, a hardback U.S. News and World Report book (laughs) and was flipping through like, well, what are the best colleges? Where should I apply to go? And I started calling. I went down the list, starting with number one down the list and called and asked these admissions offices if they would accept applications as a junior in high school. And they all told me no until I got to, I think it was number 30 or 25 at the time or 30, I don't remember, which was NYU. And they had an early admissions program. And my older brother had gotten his MBA at Stern. And so I I had a brother up in Manhattan. And so I applied in my junior year and I was admitted and I skipped my senior year of high school and went to NYU for college. And I don't know, my time at NYU was dedicated to how do I get into the best law school I can? Just, it was always the path I was on. And so I majored in politics and economics and, you know, did well and worked for a year at a big law firm, Paralegaling, after graduation from NYU and and then went to Georgetown Law School. And so that's my path to law school. And I would say a great sort of, you know, middle-class upbringing in the U.S. and with parents who are incredibly supportive of my educational pursuits. That's wonderful. So it sounds like you knew early on that you wanted to do trial work, that you wanted to be a litigator rather than, say, a transactional lawyer. When did you get interested in libel, defamation, media law? Was that at Georgetown? Was that later? No, I mean, I grew up in the age of Bush v. Gore. I was in college during Bush v. Gore, and I remember sitting up late at night watching the election. I was a politics major in college and always a bit of a news and politics junkie. You know, I studied social policy and so knew I wanted to go to law school. But the media thing, you know, of course, those are some of the more interesting, you know, con law and going to clerk. You know, I clerked on the Fifth Circuit, but the constitutional law issues were always incredibly interesting to me. But it wasn't until I started at Kirkland and Ellis after my clerkship that I really was exposed to, this could actually be a practice. I worked with Tom at Kirkland and we worked on a non-media matter together and got to know each other and worked on that case. But he had this practice already and he invited me to work on a media case with him and I jumped at the opportunity. 
you know, my philosophy at Kirkland was when I was a, a baby lawyer was pick the people you want to work with, not the subject matter. And I, you know, Tom was someone who was known to be great to work with and work for. And so I, I, that very first case, it was a media access case on behalf of a client. So it wasn't a defamation issue, but so we worked together on that and the rest was history. I was hooked and I, I really just took to this practice and enjoyed it so much. It sort of was the perfect intersection of my politics, law, political, you know, interest. And, and it was very fast paced, which I enjoyed. And we'll hear Tom's side of that story very shortly. But tell me, how long were you at Kirkland? And then when did you and Tom decide to make the jump and start your own firm? Let's see, I was at Georgetown Law School. I graduated in the class of 2005 and I clerked for a year on the Fifth Circuit. And then I was a summer associate at Kirkland and then went back to Kirkland after my clerkship. And I had an amazing experience at Kirkland in my Junior years, I was splitting my time between appellate work and trial work. I was working with Ken Starr and Chris Landau and some real lions of the appellate bar and working with Jeff Wall at the time. So I had some amazing appellate experiences and opportunities while I was at Kirkland. But splitting my time working on trial work and having this media practice with Tom and rose the ranks and was made partner at Kirkland, I think, in 2011. And really, we were developing this practice together at Kirkland and realized we were missing a lot of opportunities just by virtue of how limited we were in our ability to charge different fees or with conflicts at Kirkland. And for me personally, I was a non-equity partner at Kirkland and I was about two years out from Kirkland making a decision about whether I was going to be able to stay and make shares and become an equity partner at Kirkland. And I'll say for me personally, that was incredibly difficult for an A-type personality to not have control, to have a group, a committee of people who I didn't know, who I didn't work with directly, who were going to be making a decision about my career and my future success. That was really a challenge for me. And and so there was a moment where I looked at Tom and I said, why don't we just do this ourselves? Like, why don't we think about what this looks like? And we laughed and kind of brushed it off. And then we started getting more serious about it and looked at it. And it was a natural transition for me because I grew up with a family who were small business owners. My mom and my dad both had small businesses. My mom later had a dog breeding business. And so I grew up around a family that, you know, I saw what it was like to run a small business. And so that was not as scary to me, I think, as others jumping from the safety net of big law. But I was really excited about the prospect and the possibility of it. I think Tom was excited about it too, but perhaps a bit more nervous about it, about whether it would succeed. There was a moment when we were getting ready to sign our lease for our new office space And we had a bet and we're joking with each other about whether the firm was going to thrive or whether it was going to fail. And so we negotiated a six month out on our lease 
because Tom <laughs> thought that we were going to be standing on the bread line and I thought we were going to be wildly successful. And so we wanted a way to get on the lease, but for very different reasons. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Wow. And what year was it that you launched the firm? So we launched Claire Lock in 2014. Okay. And are you still in those offices or have you grown out of them? No, we have totally new office space. We've expanded. We have offices in Old Town Alexandria. We've expanded out of the original office into a second office and from the second office into a third office. So we are now, I think, Clearlock 3.0. So you're in Old Town Alexandria, great area. There's a rumor that Sydney Powell is in the area. Have you ever seen her around? <laughs> I've not. Okay. I'm not. <laughs> Tom and I, you know, we both lived in Alexandria before we launched the firm. And, you know, there was some real precedence. Some attorneys that I know you know had a boutique law firm who were at the pinnacle of their professional success. Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy, they had Bancroft, which is here in Old Town. And when we left Kirkland, that's really kind of what we wanted to be to the defamation world and that practice. You know, we wanted Claire Locke to be the Bancroft for defamation. And so anyway, we respect Paul and Aaron so much and what they've done. And now they're back out on their own and we're cheering them on, certainly for their firm's success. Even though you went up against them in the Dominion case, but we'll leave that for a moment. So you talked about the difference you and Tom had in terms of your estimates on how successful you would be. And it seems that you won that bet. We'll let Tom have his reply later. But... In terms of other things about the vision of the firm, what are other things you've thought about when you launched the firm that either have come to pass or have not come to pass? Well, David, you know that Tom and I are married, so I am, by virtue of that marriage, I am always right anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we left Kirkland, our vision for Claire Locke was, I mean, we were both general litigators, but also had this specific practice at Kirkland. And when we left Kirkland to start the firm, we really marketed ourselves and thought we were going to be kind of 50-50 defamation general litigators. But when we left, the market really spoke. General litigators, especially in the Washington, D.C. area, are a dime a dozen. They're really talented lawyers in this deck of the woods. But the practice that we have in the defamation space is a bit more unique, a lot more unique. And the market really spoke. And so while we still have some general litigation matters, by and large, we are a defamation shop. We focus on defamation and other reputational torts and crisis matters that not a lot of other firms practice in the space. So what percentage, if you had to sort of ballpark it, and I know it changes depending on what matters are blowing up or not, but Three quarters, 80%, 90% of your work is libel, defamation, media, et cetera. I'd probably say 90 to 95%. Okay, wow, interesting. And before we shift over to Tom, if there's a matter that you could identify in your time at Clearlock or at Kirkland, but I'm guessing it would be at Clearlock, what would you say is a highlight or a case that you really are very proud of in terms of either the result or how you litigated it or a case that has special meaning for you? Well, there's two that really come to mind. I mean, obviously, Aramo versus Rolling Stone, where we represented Dean Aramo, the dean of students at the University of Virginia, 
in her defamation claim against Rolling Stone for the false and defamatory article alleging that she tried to cover up a supposed gang rape on UVA's campus. That was the first case that Claire Locke took to trial as a firm. And it was certainly one that was in the national spotlight and one that we prevailed and were incredibly successful in. There was a 2020 special on the case that Tom and I were interviewed for. So it was a really important case, both to show how the media can get it so wrong, but also for us institutionally as a firm to show what this little but very mighty firm could do from a litigation perspective in this space. And so that is one that I'm incredibly proud of that we accomplished. The other one that's a highlight is one that's still in active litigation, although it's quiet right now, but I represent Project Veritas against the New York Times and Veritas's defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. And gosh, it's been about a year and a half ago where the New York Times published the attorney-client privileged materials of my co-counsel in our case. And we went in on an emergency basis and sought an emergency injunction against the New York Times from republishing, continuing to publish those attorney-client materials on my co-counsel in that case and prevailed on that injunction. There was a lot of media around that and a lot of, I think, a lack of understanding of what that motion was. But that is one that I think was incredibly important to show that even though there are rights of the media to publish, those rights give way when you are infringing the rights of a litigation adversary and what is also a sacred right, the right to confidential communications with your attorney. But that's a fun case. It's one that we brought against the New York Times for publishing a series of articles falsely accusing Veritas of deceptive and claims about the Minnesota ballot harvesting piece that they did. And it's one where we overcame New York's newly amended anti-SLAPP statute. It was one of the first cases, if not the first case, to overcome the SLAPP statute that was passed by the New York legislature. And so that's what I'm incredibly proud of as well and excited to see move forward in the months to come. Those are both interesting cases in which you got fantastic results. It's very rare to get an injunction against a media outlet. So the Project Veritas case really stands out. And then in Dean Eremo's case, didn't you get a multi-million dollar verdict? Yeah, we secured a multi-million dollar verdict. And the discovery in that case really demonstrated how badly Rolling Stone had botched their investigation and all the shortcuts that Rolling Stone had taken to publish a narrative that was just you know, it was too good to be true and they didn't want to let it go, notwithstanding all the red flags. And, you know, Nicole became a dear friend through the course of that representation. I think it's the thing that I enjoy the most about our practice is when you are dealing with a client in crisis, you become very close with your clients. It's emotional for them. It becomes emotional for the lawyers working on the case you are with them at their best and at their worst. And you are not only counselor in law, but counselor in life. And it's incredibly gratifying and an honor to be with a client in those moments. So one last question to you before we turn to Tom, speaking of law versus life. So 
you are married and your law partners. And I know some people would think, wow, that's amazing. And other people would say that would be the end of our practice and our marriage. So <laughs> how would you describe that? When did you start to sort of, you know, I guess, have romantic feelings towards each other? When did you get oh, married gosh. versus when did you launch the firm? Like, how did that all unfold? Tom and I, well, we worked together for many years at Kirkland's. And Tom took credit for all the work that I was doing for him behind the scenes for many years. Man, he was a partner. I finally, I finally made him give me some credit. No, we got married in 2017 and we had our little girl in 2018. I think working together has been, I mean, look, our relationship started out as colleagues and we have always made a great team. And I just can't imagine not working with Tom. It's the thing I like the least about Claire Locke is that now that we both have these practices and reputations in our own right, we get to work together less than we probably did at Kirkland. But I don't know. We joke that the pillow talk is super sexy, right? <laughs> hey, Tom, what do you think about the actual malice standard in this game? <laughs> but no, it's great. I mean, I think from a life perspective, it's great because we share a common mission in both the firm and in our personal lives. And so, you know, there's complete insight and transparency into what he's working on, what I'm working on. We're juggling a lot. You know, if I have to do a call on a weekend and he's hanging with the kids or vice versa, or if he has to travel and and I need to stay back. It helps with tamping down any kind of resentment for the other spouse's work or time away from the family. And so that I think is from a life perspective is one of the best things. I mean, we love it. I love it. So Tom, before we rewind to talk about your upbringing, what are your comments on the law life partnership? How has that been for you? And do you have any advice for married couples who are thinking about working together? Sure. Well, it's terrific working so closely with Libby, you know, we are partners in the firm and obviously have this broader partnership in life. But, you know, we started out with a terrific working relationship. So we know how to work together really well. And I think Libby got it exactly right. There are so many advantages to having a spouse that is so closely tied with your practice she understands what it means to have to get on the phone at 11 o'clock at night and understands why and understands, you know, what's going on with the client and vice versa. When she has a client emergency, I have real understanding in a way that even couples who are lawyers who are not in the same firm don't have because of client confidentiality, we're able to share all of that information. So it's really terrific. And we are each other's sounding boards for a whole range of things at the office and the way we run the firm on client matters. I can informally get advice from Libby on my client matters on strategy anytime, day or night, which is a huge advantage to have access to her as an alternate strategist or, you know, how do you help me frame this argument? We can kind of pump each other up for arguments and depositions and kind of do all of that. I would say there's nothing that I don't like about it. And the downsides are kind of what Libby identified is we don't get to work together as closely as we used to, ironically enough. And we talk regularly about how we would like to remedy that. <laughs> we love the opportunities when we have a big case, a large matter, 
where the staffing or the client, it makes sense for us to both be on the case. That's not true for all of our matters, but it's true for some of them. And those tend to be our favorite cases because it's kind of like putting the band back together again. We get all the benefits of of working together. We really enjoy that. And we look for those opportunities to be able to do that. And Libby and I have very different styles. We like to joke that ours is a story of fire and ice. Those of your listeners who know both of us will be able to guess easily who's fire and who's ice. But <laughs> we do have very different styles. And we bring that energy to our client engagements. And our clients really love the chemistry that we have when we go to meet with a client especially, you know, some of our really high net worth clients or CEOs or boards of directors, you know, we bring to bear, we have the Kirkland pedigree, we've worked at a big firm, we know how to talk to clients like that. But we also have an energy and a chemistry together and giving advice that the clients really resonate with. And they benefit from both the fire and the ice when we give that advice. And so I think it's a real advantage to the client. In terms of advice, I'll tell you the thing that I struggle with the most is, you know, there are certainly times when you know, Tom, the husband has a conflict with Tom, the law partner in thinking through a particular issue, you know, Libby will be, you know, working crazy hours and will be super busy on something and we'll get a new matter in that she'll have to take on. And we'll talk about whether we should take it on or not. And of course, Tom, the husband, who's very protective of her and her time and her energy would say, hey, you know, maybe you really shouldn't take this on, or maybe we should take a pass on this or what have you. But Tom, the law partner and Tom, the fiduciary to the firm, of course, you know, has a different perspective because it's all accretive to the firm. And so it works both directions. Libby is the same way in thinking through issues with me. And so there does come those times when we have to kind of think with multiple hats on, but we're really good at working through all of those things. And we've never had a work related conflict that has spilled over into our personal life. We talk about work at home, we talk about home at work, but we're really good at kind of managing through all of it and getting to the right place. That's great. I think that's really important also for couples that do work together. And Zach and I work together on certain things. For example, he'll edit stories I write or we've co-authored things. But your privilege point is a very interesting one because sometimes Zach is working on something and he's clearly stressed, but he can't tell me about it because it's some non-public matter, hasn't even been filed. And I'm not his law partner, so it's an interesting advantage. We have dual privilege. We have attorney. (laughs) We also have the spouse privilege, right? So our communications are doubly protected, (laughs) but it's a very close relationship, obviously. And having that transparency, I think, is a huge advantage. That's great. That's great. So let's turn to your upbringing, Tom. What was it like? And did you know, like Libby, that you wanted to be a lawyer from early on? Well, listening to Libby's account really underscored something that is thematic in our relationship, which is our not insignificant age difference. Libby is nine and a half years younger than I am. And so I was interested in the different television shows and things that (laughs) were formative in her decision to become a lawyer. My television shows were one generation earlier. I grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, about an hour south of D.C. My father was a civilian, but he worked for the Navy. He was an aerospace engineer and my mom stayed home with my brother and I. We do not have any lawyers in the family. My grandfather was in law enforcement. He was a police officer in New York City and then later a homicide detective. That's probably the closest thing. But he had a real interest in kind of the law from a criminal law perspective as a homicide detective. So we used to talk about that when I was growing up. But I did not have any lawyers in my family to emulate or really understand what lawyers did. I grew up watching L.A. law. 
probably off the air by the time Libby was watching television. But, you know, I certainly gravitated towards those issues. I thought I loved law. I didn't really know what lawyers did, but I thought I did. And there's a kind of a famous story in my household about me as a, a young boy. There had been some transgression around the house, some minor act of vandalism to the house that my parents could not figure out whether I had done it or my brother had done it. My brother, Todd, is four years younger than I. And so my parents were so frustrated that neither one of us would own up to this thing that my dad, in a kind of a bit of not knowing what to do, ordered both of us to go to our rooms and write sentences like 500 times, I will respect my surroundings or something like that. And my brother immediately, he's crying, goes to his room, starts writing and writing the sentences and trying to finish this punishment. Whereas I was struck by just how unjust and arbitrary this punishment was that didn't really fit the crime. And <laughs> it didn't really attempt to get to the wrongdoer. It didn't really address you know, the issue. And so I went to my parents and I started making this case about why <laughs> the punishment had no correlation to what they were trying to accomplish. And after about two hours of back and forth with my dad, he was like, yeah, okay, you got some good points there. So you don't have to write the sentences. And we went and got my brother from his room who was like on sentence 496. He had been, <laughs> and he was so mad. But from that moment, my parents knew that I had some aptitude as a litigator and being able to argue my case on my feet. And I was probably in grade school when that took place. I think I certainly had the aptitude. And then I also had a lack of aptitude in another area. My dad was an aerospace engineer and certainly, you know, brilliant in math and sciences. Whatever those genes are clearly skipped my generation because <laughs> I got to high school math and college math, and I just couldn't do the math and didn't enjoy it. Both of my kids got it, so it must skip that generation. But I pretty much knew I wanted to go to law school from you know the time I was in high school and tried to coordinate my college career when I majored in government and international relations going to law school. And then tell us about law school and when you also started to learn about libel, defamation, and media law. Sure. So, you know, I went to college in the era before the internet. So I really didn't know a lot about the different law schools or even know about life beyond law school. I knew that I had to go and I knew that I would probably learn what sort of law I would want to do in law school. I applied a whole bunch of places and got waitlisted everywhere except for one place. I got rejected from Georgetown Law, where Libby went. <laughs> My roommate at the time, we used to keep track of our law school rejections. And Georgetown rejected me with a postcard. So when we got home to my dorm room, my roommate had already seen my rejection because it was on a postcard. <laughs> I walked in from class and he says, hey, dude, you got rejected from Georgetown. It was like a Tuesday. I just applied the prior Thursday. So it was a very quick rejection. But I got waitlisted everywhere else. And I, went, I had gone to Notre Dame for undergrad. And I ended up walking over to the Notre Dame Law School and talking to some of the deans and kind of made a case why they should let me off the wait list. And they did. They took a chance on me off the wait list. And I ended up at Notre Dame Law School for three years, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Did not have any exposure to defamation law beyond one day in torts class. I had a professor who spent a day and it was very memorization oriented. It was the different legal standards for public and private figures and what kind of damages you can recover with what sorts of of proof. 
But that was really it. That was all I had in law school as an exposure to this area of the law. And I actually thought in law school that I would end up going into criminal work. I had taken a lot of classes from sort of the criminal area, complex criminal litigation that I really enjoyed. So I knew I wanted to do litigation, but I had thought I would want to do criminal prosecution until I started interviewing with these big law firms my second year. And that's when I was fortunate enough to get a summer associate position at Kirkland & Ellis. And again, this was before the internet, so I didn't know the difference between any of these firms. I didn't know, you know, which of the big firms had what reputation or which ones were better than others. But what I did know was that Kirkland had spent a fair amount of money and investment in trial advocacy. The National Institute for Trial Advocacy is headquartered in South Bend, right near Notre Dame. And so I knew a lot of the folks at NIDA, and I asked them for the names of the firms that really had a real commitment to trial advocacy, and Kirkland was at the top of the list. And that really made an impression on me because I wanted to be a trial lawyer of some sort. And so when Kirkland gave me an offer, I went and I spent my summer after my 2L year at Kirkland. And it was there that I had my first real exposure to defamation work. It happened to be that was the summer that General Motors was involved in the Dateline NBC exploding trucks matter, which was a huge media scandal of the day that General Motors was pushing back on Dateline NBC and for a defamatory broadcast that they had done attacking some of their trucks. And I had a very minor role in it, like a summer associate would, but it was fun. It was super exciting. And it kind of piqued my interest in that area from the two weeks that I spent on it as a summer associate. After law school, I went and clerked on the Seventh Circuit for Judge Ken Ripple, who was a professor at Notre Dame Law School. He's one of my professors, one of my favorite professors, taught me fed courts and conflicts. And so I was honored when he offered me a clerkship to come stay in South Bend for another year and got a chance to see some really terrific litigation matters at the Seventh Circuit. But I didn't really want to do appellate work. And so when I went to Kirkland after my clerkship, I went into the general litigation kind of pool and was doing general litigation work. And very much like what Libby said, just a generation earlier, it wasn't really the area of the law that I was gravitated towards. It was the partners, two of the partners at Kirkland who ended up becoming my biggest mentors in the law, Tom Yanucci, who was the chair of the firm for many years, and Jim Basil, who was one of his lieutenants. They had recruited me from Notre Dame, and I really enjoyed working with them on general litigation matters. They had been involved in the Dateline NBC matter, and then a new matter had come into the firm when I was a second-year associate for Chiquita, the banana company. And that turned out to be another huge defamation matter that lasted four or five years. I was the principal associate on the case and spent a lot of time on it, a lot of time in Cincinnati at Chiquita. We got a terrific result. Front page apology, a $14.5 million payment. You know, the reporter ended up going to jail. It was just a terrific result for our client, but it was four or five years of my life that I had invested in this. And when it was over, you know, there was this question at Kirkland, like what to do with this practice. Tom and Jim kind of went on to the other things that they worked on in commercial litigation. And nobody really had an interest in seeing whether this practice could continue. And so anytime we'd get another client that would come in, it would say, oh, I want to do what the Chiquita folks did. 
you know, it would sort of come to me by default because I had developed this expertise. And that just happened over and over again until it became well known within the firm that I had this expertise and was basically servicing other partners, clients in this area. And that's how by the time we started working together and when we left Claire Locke, it was probably about 50% of my practice was doing this sort of defamation work. And so that's kind of how I got involved in it. And then tell us about the decision to leave Kirkland. That certainly seemed like a big decision. And you were a share partner at the time. And we know from the latest AMLO 100 rankings how much Kirkland share partners make these days. But were you nervous? According to Libby, it sounds like you were. I don't know if you would agree with that. Her telling of that story is pretty accurate. I certainly recognize the same economic constraints on this practice that Libby described. I mean, you know, Kirkland has all of these corporate clients and those corporate clients own media outlets. And so more often than not, when a new matter would come in either directly to me or through a partner and they would say, we want you to be adverse to this media outlet or that media outlet, conflicts would prevent us from taking it on. And some of these were really good matters that would be, you know, multi-year litigation matters, very economically beneficial to the firm. And it was frustrating to have to turn that away, both for my own career, right, trying to build a book of business at the firm, but also these were good matters where we could really help clients. And then just not having the flexibility to charge the rates that we wanted to. At a big firm like Kirkland, you have committee that has to decide those things. And, you know, there are limits on the rates that you can charge. And some of these matters were really good matters, but we needed some flexibility on how we would structure a fee arrangement. Even for hourly work, it really didn't make a lot of sense. And so as Libby and I were working on this practice together, we both shared some frustration about just what we were leaving on the table. And, you know, that all sort of coalesced around the idea of what Libby said in terms of having autonomy over your practice and your career. For her, it was whether or not she was going to become an equity partner. I was already an equity partner, but being an equity partner in a giant firm with 2,000 partners, you do not have a lot of ability to chart your own course in life. You know, you have to convince a lot of other people of something before you can make a really significant change, before you can have, you know, the autonomy that you really would want in order to build a practice. And so for me, one of the very appealing things was to trade all of that bureaucracy and red tape and committees for the ability for us to create our own practice and our own culture at our firm and really make our own decisions and the like. So I was excited about that. And, you know, we put together a business plan. As Libby said, it started out sort of as a joke. We had a difficult conversation with the client about our rate structure. And she was very difficult and clear with us that we would not be getting additional work because of the high rates that we were charging at Kirkland. And we went back and that night and we were, you know, over a beer, kind of crying in our beer about this client that we were about ready to lose because of the rate structure. And Libby said, you know, well, hey, what if we were to do this on our own? What would that look like? And we kind of did, you know, the fantasy football draft of, well, who would you take with you from Kirkland? What other lawyers would we pull on to the fantasy football team? And we got a big laugh out of it until, you know, we started putting some numbers down and we saw that we could really make a go of it. I certainly did not see, and I've got to give Libby full credit for both the idea for starting the firm and also the vision to see what it could be in terms of success. I was much more pessimistic about it. But 
once we started the firm and once we launched and once I saw the way clients were reacting to the product that we were offering and this expertise that we had, the combination of a Kirkland pedigree, trial litigation experience, you know, the ability to try cases and this very unique, very deep understanding of defamation law, then like it all clicked. Libby and I then really could see what this place could become, which just started the two of us. You know, now we have 18 lawyers. We have you know, five or six professionals. We've got all these offices. We travel all over the world and service clients in this area. And, you know, it wasn't long after we started that it all sort of clicked for both of us in terms of what this could become. Would you like to follow in Tom and Libby's footsteps and leave Big Law to launch your own boutique? This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more and follow them on LinkedIn as well. So now that you've been doing this on your own for years and you also have some distance on Kirkland, I'm curious, given the issues you identified, including conflicts and rates, if somebody wanted to have a practice like Claire Locke, plaintiff side, high stakes media and defamation work, but wanted to do it within either Kirkland itself or a similar large law firm. Is that even possible, do you think? I don't think it's possible to do in the way that we do. I mean, if I just sort of do an informal roster of the cases that we're working on right now, including the ones that are both most economically successful for us, but also the highest profile, the ones that drive other business to us, I would say a good 70 to 80 to 90 percent of them would not be possible in a big law firm environment just because of the conflicts. And, you know, it's not even real conflicts a lot of times. You know, imagine a matter comes into you and somebody says, oh, I want you to be adverse to the Wall Street Journal. And you don't have a conflict with the journal, but your tax partner in Los Angeles aspires to do tax work for Dow Jones someday. And there's a discussion internally about which matter is likely to be more long-term advantageous for the firm, this long-term tax engagement or this one-time matter that I'm asking to bring in. And so, you know, it's not just pure conflicts, but there's a business set of decisions that are being made. And so one of the reasons why I think we've been so successful at Claire Locke is instead of at Kirkland or a bigger law firm, is we don't pose a threat to a big law firm and their clients when they have an issue, they can bring us in as part of the team to deal with the defamation issue and we partner with them. All the big firms use us. So they will bring us in. We will partner with them. We'll help service their client. We make them look smart because they bring in subject matter experts on this defamation law. But we have no ambitions to their IP work or their M&A work or their tax work. We don't care. We're here to help them with the defamation issue. And so our referral network is much, much broader. Whereas if we were doing this at Kirkland, you know, another big law firm wouldn't refer a matter to Kirkland because once Kirkland gets its nose under the tent, you know, everybody's going to be worried about their business. And so that ability not to really pose a threat, but be accretive to a big firm's client relationships really is a big advantage for us. That makes total sense. I could see a company that has a CEO who's been defamed, maybe for something not even related to his work stuff, maybe, but, and they need to find him great representation, but maybe it would involve being adverse to some large company that has media stuff, but also has other properties. And you would seem like the perfect firm to refer that to. 
I'm curious, you mentioned fees also. How would you describe, a? T- I don't know if there's a typical fee arrangement at Clearlock. You're doing plaintiff's side work. How much of your work is contingency work? Do you do blended things? Do you do things with success fees? How would you describe your philosophy on billing? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, one of the big advantages that we have is that we can be nimble and be responsive to the way our clients need to think about fee arrangements. So we do have some flexibility in the way we approach it. Now, with that said, you know, the market also has spoken. We have enormous demand for what we do. We turn away a lot of work and a lot of clients and a lot of matters that are really excellent, not because of the economics, but just because we want to make sure that if we take on a matter, we are being able to give A plus work to it and we're able to devote the time to it. And so we don't have a need to really stretch for fee arrangements because of the demand is we're blessed to have. And so typically our work is done on an hourly basis. We require most of our clients who are not involved in litigation to be on a retainer with us, which is basically just an option to buy our time at our hourly rates. And that's for a couple of reasons is one, we want to make sure that our clients and we are aligned around how important the matter is. You know, we don't want a client to use our name or our reputation just for a, you know, a one-off sort of a thing. We really want to have a longer-term relationship with them and clients appreciate that. And two, we just need to be able to allocate our resources. We're so busy and we have so much demand that we have to look a few months out and say, how do we make sure that we've got enough bandwidth to handle the matters that we expect to have. And so by charging a retainer, we're able to look at the beginning of every month and see who's on retainer, how much bandwidth do we expect and need to have. And so that's, a, I would say, a typical arrangement for the right matter and for the right case and for the right situation. You know, we have explored alternate fee arrangements before, but, you know, very few of our matters are done on a contingency basis. In fact, we have a disclaimer on our website, you know, when people click on us to, to submit an intake where we make people certify. They understand that we don't do contingency fee matters. There are a lot of very worthy clients out there that have good matters and you know might be a good candidate for a defamation claim, but it's just not our business model. So let me actually shift then to something I wanted to ask you about in terms of current events. Dominion, $787.5 million settlement. Now, I don't know what your fee arrangement with them is, but is that something you wish you would have taken on contingency? So I'll just say, without getting into the specifics of our Dominion arrangement, we're very satisfied with the arrangement that we struck with them. You know, for Dominion, there were a lot of reasons to take that case, some of which were financial and others were more broad than the financial. I mean, certainly when it's the biggest defamation case or cases, because there's, you know, seven of them of your time, we want to be the go-to defamation firm in the country. And we have to be a part of it. We want to be a part of it. And when we got the call, it was an easy yes to get to become a part of it. And also, it was an important case for democracy and getting to the truth and getting the faith in our electoral system restored in some way by the discovery that we were going to do in the case. So it was really important for us to take that. But with all of those things said, you know, we can't run a law firm on those good feelings. And so we reached a fee arrangement with Dominion that we're very happy with. 
So tell me about that call then, Tom, in terms of how you got first brought into the Dominion case. Sure. So it was shortly after the election. It was over Thanksgiving. And we talked a little bit earlier about the marriage of our home life and our professional life. I received a call from someone on behalf of Dominion that wanted to talk about our defamation practice. And I literally walked down the hill while we were preparing Thanksgiving to our offices and, you know, had a quiet conversation with the folks that had called us to talk about our expertise. And, you know, we obviously were well known as a top flight defamation shop. They were looking for National Defamation Council, someone who had real deep experience who could take cases to trial. And at that point, you know, it was still early. It was just a few weeks after the election. There were a lot of things that hadn't happened. You know, January 6th had not happened. There were a lot of things that were still in play. And what I think we were able to add very early when we were retained over that Thanksgiving weekend was a real kind of game plan for how do you think about defamation on this scale? You've got all these different players. You've got, you know, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and the MyPillow guy and Patrick Byrne. And then you've got these other outlets, Newsmax and OAN, and they kind of had their significant role in the media infrastructure and driving a lot of this narrative. And then you've got Fox and you know, how do you think about them? And how do you think about some of the governmental players that were involved? I mean, this was a very free flowing landscape of defamation. And so what our role was initially was sort of making sense of all of that. How do we think about it? How do we build record, a written record with these outlets and with these folks so that we had optionality later on for defamation? I mean, to be honest, like the goal wasn't to file the mother of all defamation claims. The goal was to get people to stop. You know, they were destroying this company. They had people with rifles showing up at their offices and they were getting death threats. And, you know, it was just awful for this company. And so the goal was really to get them to stop. And so part of what we did was the crisis work of creating a written record and setting up communications to these outlets, pointing out the factual falsehoods of what was being said and the dangers of relying on sources like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and the MyPillow guy that were spreading these crazy electoral fraud theories that had no basis in fact. And then that role then morphed into, okay, we've now gotten through January, we've gotten through January 6th. It's clear that there is not going to be a stop to this huge percentage of the country, unfortunately, believed that Dominion had rigged the election and that we needed a litigation strategy. And so then the strategy kind of morphed to where do we file? Who do we file against? And, you know, starting to draft those complaints. And then that's kind of the way it has gone from there. We filed a bunch of cases in federal court in District of Columbia against the individuals. Then we filed some cases in Delaware against media outlets and trying to get them to trial in an organized way and in a way that made sense was really the way we've been functioning. It sounds like your role then is very strategic, long-term, big picture, quarterback-ish. How would you describe your role also in connection with the other excellent lawyers and law firms that Dominion has retained how would you distinguish your role from, say, that of Sussman or your Delaware colleagues, Farnan, I think? How would you explain that? Yeah, so it's a great team. It's been a great team effort. And Sussman came on relatively early in the process that I described. It was, I don't recall exactly when they came on board, but it was around the early part of the year after it kind of morphed into this litigation role. And it was clear that we were going to need a whole bunch of skills. We needed, obviously, our deep 
defamation experience and expertise we're going to need to be able to litigate these cases and to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time over the course of six different cases in multiple jurisdictions. And so Sussman's obviously a tremendous trial law firm. They've got a great entrepreneurial culture like we do. And when it was suggested that we work together with them, you know, it seemed like a very natural fit. And so what we did was we divided a lot of the trial work right at the beginning. We functioned as a very coordinated trial team, you know, multiple calls per week, integrated project lists, you know, lots of communications at the highest levels of both firms to try to map out strategy. And what we did was try to create zones of responsibility within the case so that work was not being duplicated, but that we were leveraging the discovery that we were getting in the case so that, you know, a document that a clear lock attorney saw as they were reviewing documents would be visible to the Sussman team on the other side of the empire who might need that document for a different purpose. And so we had kind of overall responsibilities for putting the case together, but then we also had kind of silos of more specific responsibilities. So for example, there were certain hosts on air who we were responsible for and we took their deposition. And then of course, all the producers and other people that were involved in that reporting chain you know, we would kind of have overall responsibility for them. And there were other on-air hosts where the Sussman team would have a responsibility for. And it worked really well. The communication was really terrific. And, you know, with our trial experience and with their trial experience, came together really well. The Farnan firm in, in Delaware was kind of, you know, terrific with on-the-ground understanding of how, you know, the Delaware courts are approaching this issue and helping us to navigate kind of some of the unique Delaware procedural questions that we had to deal. And I'd be remiss if I did not call out Rod Smola, who yeah. is, of course, was also part of our team. And, you know, for me personally, having Rod on the team was really terrific. I mean, he's obviously a great litigator in his own right, and has litigated a ton of these cases himself, but he literally wrote the book <laughs> on defamation law. And I've had Rod's book on my shelf for, you know, ever since I've been practicing in this area and I consulted often. And so when we were in D.C. federal court in front of Judge Nichols arguing the motion to dismiss in the very first of these cases that came, and I argued the actual malice part of that case in front of Judge Nichols, and I sat down and, you know, Rod Smola was sitting there next to me and he kind of put his hand on my shoulder and said, great job. It was surreal to me that, <laughs> that, that the man who had kind of taught me this area of the law was complimenting my work. But it was a great team. It just, you know, we all liked each other. We all had a common mission. And it was great. We typically do not work with other law firms on defamation matters. It just, you know, we can usually prefer to handle it ourselves. And we certainly have the bandwidth to do it. But here, the teaming arrangement was, I think, you know, beneficial for all of us to be able to get all of these cases moving forward quickly, which was important to the country. That makes sense also. And I can understand just given the number of suits, we forget that this is just the tip of the iceberg, a very large tip, but there are other cases that Dominion's pursuing. And I know its CEO has been writing and speaking about how they still need to get justice in some of these other cases. So to the extent that you can discuss it, because I know some of this is perhaps privileged or otherwise confidential, can you offer some general thoughts on the settlement and just how it came about and or why did it turn out to be so large? Yeah. So, I mean, without crossing any boundaries here, I think I can offer a couple of observations about it. 
you know, first of all, it was what did Dominion want to get out of this litigation, right? You always, as a lawyer, always want to keep in mind your client's objectives. And the main objective here was accountability and the truth we wanted to get out. And accountability takes many forms. And I'll come back to that in a second. But on the truth front, it was vitally important to us that we set the record straight as it relates to Dominion's role and the properly understood role that it played in the 2020 election and rejecting the notion that it had rigged the election. And when we were successful on summary judgment in getting a ruling that these statements about Dominion were false, that was a measure of vindication that we were looking for is, you know, what they wanted was a piece of paper from the court that said these allegations are false, that everybody's had a chance to litigate them. We've had full discovery. Everybody's had complete transparency. And now we have a trier of fact that is saying false and not just false after a jury trial because there was an open question, false on the summary judgment standard. No reasonable person could find that these allegations were true. And of course, truth is always an issue in a defamation case. So we had one measure of what we were trying to accomplish after the summary judgment decision when the judge correctly found that these allegations were false, but that still does not provide accountability. And so what we wanted accountability from Fox was we wanted them to feel the effects of what they had done. They had destroyed this company. I mean, they really had destroyed this company to the extent that it was impossible for them to go forward as a going concern. Employees were leaving in droves because of the death threats and the security issues. The election officials around the country, even those who roundly disbelieved the electoral conspiracy theories, they were unable to work with Dominion at all because of their constituents, right? With such a huge percentage of the people in the country, these are elected officials and, you know, they have to be responsive to their constituents. And even if they knew that this was all a bunch of lies, they had to be responsive to their constituents. And so, you know, the company was destroyed by these allegations. And so accountability meant a financial settlement that would do two things. It would really both compensate Dominion for some portion of the damage that it had suffered. And, you know, we're still only part of the way there. It was a big award, but we're still only part of the way there in terms of the economic damages that they've suffered. But also that it would send a signal to the world that, you know, you don't pay that kind of money unless that there was a significant liability there for having recklessly told these falsehoods. And so having a public settlement amount in this large range was really important because I think it speaks volumes to the world about, you know, just how significant a problem that this was. And that was the measure of the accountability that we were looking for. And then, you know, finally, Fox, as part of the agreement, had acknowledged the falsity. They acknowledged the court's ruling on falsity, which was important, right? It wasn't just the court saying it, but we did not want them to be able to walk away from that court finding and say, well, the court got it wrong. It was important for us that they affirm all of that. You asked how the settlement came about. I would have to echo the words of Judge Davis, who was terrific in getting this case to trial and getting it organized in you know, such a huge case in such a short amount of time. He and the special master that he appointed did unbelievable work getting this ready. But when the settlement was announced in the courtroom, Judge Davis said some things that I would wholeheartedly agree with after having been very close to the settlement discussions and negotiations is that 
it was the reality of picking a jury. He said this to the jury. He said, you know, your presence here, even though you were not needed to adjudicate this dispute, your presence here was vitally important in catalyzing the settlement. And it was true. I mean, it was going to get very real for Fox very quickly. We had, you know, a killer slate of opening witnesses and their executives and their on-air hosts were going to be on the stand, being cross-examined, having to answer questions about their private text messages and internal communications, many of which have been made public that really, you know, I think were problematic for them and certainly would be problematic in front of a jury. And so having the jury in the box and, you know, literally the settlement was negotiated as the jury was in a conference room off to the side of the courtroom. And one set of lawyers was in the room finishing picking the jury and we were finalizing the settlement agreement in parallel with it. And so I really do think it was the presence of the jury and that very near-term accountability that catalyzed the settlement. And I can understand that too. I've actually been picked twice for a jury despite being a lawyer. And in one of the cases, I never got to serve because our presence there, as the judge told us in this New York Supreme Court case, caused the parties to settle. So I do understand that part. But let me ask you this. Let me play devil's advocate a little bit. A lot of people have pointed out that this private equity company, whose name escapes me, had purchased a stake in Dominion just a few years earlier for maybe $38 million or something like this. So how do those damages numbers add up? I know Fox also in the pretrial motion practice, et cetera, had really pushed back on that as well. Does the number partly reflect not just economic damage to Dominion, which I think some could argue was below that, but did it reflect sort of a premium to keep Tucker Carlson and Rupert Murdoch off the stand? Well, you know, look, what motivated the Fox team to pay that dollar amount, I can't really speak to all of their motivations. What I can say is that the economic damage model that we put forward that was challenged in the pretrial proceeding, which the judge upheld in terms of against the Dalbert challenge and being able to be presented to the jury, it tells a story of Dominion and their economic fortunes that doesn't stop at the moment when the private equity firm purchased that interest back in the day. And when you look at Dominion's origin story and you look at its trajectory and where it was going and the market share that it had, it was a rocket ship. I mean, it was it was doing great on its own, developing market share, becoming more and more profitable, developing more and more counties and across the country that were using it. In fact, it was, you know, making huge strides, but it was somewhat force limited just by the resources that it had available to it. And then when the private equity firm purchased the interest and brought to bear all the things that come along with an infusion of capital and a an investment and also the expertise that the private equity firms have in just operations and those sorts of things. What you then saw was a hockey stick trajectory for the firm in terms of its growth. And, you know, the projections that the firm had from these long-term contracts that it entered into, I mean, making it a contract for a voting machine, it's a long-term contract because counties don't want to purchase machines and purchase these services and replace them every year, right? So if you get into one of these counties, you can count on a revenue stream pretty much for a number of years as it relates to the sales and the service and the refreshing of those machines. And so when you look through all of the economics of it and you go to look at the projections that were incredibly conservative and that existed at the time of that investment, the enterprise value of the company was, you know, over billions of dollars. And so the idea that this settlement 
addresses a part of the enterprise value when it's clear the entire enterprise of the company was destroyed. I mean, they have zero value as a going concern. It's very clear from what's happening in the world and as far as their repeat business. So the economics are there. They're buried in the, you know, sort of the expert report, but it's one of the things that we're looking forward to in the remaining cases that we have is demonstrating, you know, how the enterprise value of the company was formulated and making sure that people understand that while this settlement amount, very large, it only begins to address the economic harm to the company. So I want to turn to Libby in a sec to talk about the First Amendment implications of this case. But just one last question on this economics issue, Tom. Is the company starting to now turn things around now that they have this judicial finding about how they were not involved in this fraud and now how they're getting this huge settlement? And lay people would say, well, Fox must have done something wrong if they're paying all this money. Can Dominion as a going concern turn itself around? Or is the price of an equity company just going to be happy for the $800 million and go its merry way? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's too soon to tell, honestly. I mean, you know, this was last Tuesday. It's less than a week later. I will say, though, that the lasting impacts of what Fox did and what these other outlets did, and it's not just Fox, you know, these other outlets speak to a particular segment of the voting population. And there is still an enormous percentage of people who believe because they get their news, not just from Fox, but from OAN and from Newsmax and from some of these other sources who believe that Dominion was formed in Venezuela to rig elections and believe that Dominion voting was involved in flipping the votes in 2020 election. And so the story I told earlier about these election officials who, even if they are persuaded by the settlement or persuaded by the finding of falsity, the indelible damage that was done to this company over two years of the airwaves blasting nonstop, these people rigged the election, I think is going to be incredibly challenging to turn that around. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but it's, you know, they're trying. I mean, they're working very hard. Theirs is not a, hey, we're just going to litigate our net worth strategy. They're out there trying to sell, trying to get the truth out. But I think it really remains to be seen. And it's very clear there's still a lot of damage that is unaddressed that, you know, we hope to remedy in these other cases. So going up to more of a 30,000 foot level beyond just Dominion, last week I spoke to David Boyce about this case and I published some of what we talked about over the weekend regarding this case. And he described it as a big win, obviously, for your clients. But one thing David did comment on was he wasn't sure how much significance this case would have in the First Amendment context because... As you pointed out, in leading up to trial, there were uniquely bad facts. There were terrible facts, terrible evidence for terrible conduct by Fox. So, Libby, I know you've been very involved in issues surrounding the actual malice standard and New York Times versus Sullivan. What implications does this gigantic settlement have for the larger debate about free speech, media rights, and also the rights of people not to be defamed? But it's a great question, David. What I keep hearing from some of the talking heads, both on the left and the right, is while the settlement is so large, it demonstrates that Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch were wrong in their calls for revisiting New York Times versus Sullivan, that it shows that you can overcome the Sullivan standard. See what Claire Locke and Sussman did a la Dominion in this, you know, almost $800 million settlement. I actually think the opposite is true. I think the settlement shows just how comfortable the mainstream press has become 
under the Sullivan regime lying to the American public because it's very clear, it's very clear from the Dominion discovery and cases that we have litigated outside of the Fox context. But in Rolling Stone, these reporters never think that they're going to be subject to litigation and discovery and seeing what happens behind the curtain. And precisely because the Sullivan Standard makes it so incredibly difficult to bring a claim, to survive an early motion to dismiss, to survive summary judgment. And so I actually think that the settlement shows just how bad it has gotten inside these mainstream outlets. And, you know, while Dominion was focused on Fox, our practice at Claire Lock, we litigate against the mainstream press every day and we see documents and we see what the press does and journalists do from these mainstream outlets, you know, before publication. And while this was an egregious example, the Dominion case and what Fox did, There are a lot of other outlets who do the very same thing, perhaps not on a scale that was so damaging to the country, but still very damaging to our other clients who either don't have the financial wherewithal to be able to go toe-to-toe with a corporately owned media outlet or for a variety of reasons because they think a defamation claim is hopeless because it's very challenging to win them, they decide not to bring it. And so, you know, I've been asked by several, do I still continue to believe the Sullivan Standard should be overturned? I do. I think it's very bad judge-made policy that doesn't have a place rooted in the text, the structure, the history of the First Amendment. So as a journalist, let me play devil's advocate. Just as a policy matter, isn't the Sullivan regime really important to protect journalists as they or we do our work and holding powerful institutions and people accountable, don't we need to have some room for good faith error? And doesn't the Sullivan Standard protect that? Well, I appreciate that you frame the question as a question of policy, because that's exactly what Sullivan is, is a policy made decision because it's not supported by the text or the structure or the history of the First Amendment. But As a policy maker, should state legislatures step in and legislate and codify a Sullivan-like standard, if that's the question? I still answer that question, no, because being a journalist, it is the only profession, the media is the only profession that we have in the United States where you can avoid liability unless you have knowingly lied to the public are knowingly engaged in misconduct to the public. Every other profession is guided by either a negligent standard or a standard code of ethics that is set by, you know, lawyers, we have our own code of ethics set by the bar. And I don't think getting rid of the Sullivan standard where a plaintiff has to show that person who is writing about them knowingly lied, eliminates press protections in such a way that many in the press say, oh, well, the sky is falling, the media is never going to be able to write. What you revert to without a Sullivan standard is a negligence standard. It's reasonableness. What is reasonable under the circumstances? And that can vary depending on whether there is a breaking news justification to rush to print or whether you're doing a long-form journalism piece, much like the Rolling Stone piece was in Aramo, where the journalist there failed to reach out to anyone who was there and were around the events in question that she was writing about. 
And so I think coming back to first principles and adhering to a reasonableness, negligence standard where, you know, a true code of ethics for journalists to apply is appropriate. I think it's better for press. I think it's better for the American public to have confidence in the media, which is at an all-time low right now. So before we shift to our speed round, I wanted to just ask one last question, picking up on what you just said, Libby. You talked about state legislatures, and I believe you've been involved in efforts in Florida with Governor DeSantis to change the standard there. Can you talk a little bit about that work? And can you also address the sort of strange bedfellows aspect of how some DeSantis supporters were very angry that he would be working with a lawyer who was representing Dominion? (laughs) I thought all of that press was a little silly, but yeah. So I've known, gosh, I've known Ron since before Ron got involved in politics. We're roughly the same vintage. He was at Harvard and I was at Georgetown, but we graduated from law school the same year. And through mutual friends, we got to know each other when Ron had finished in the Navy. And so, you know, Ron and his team asked me to join this panel down in Florida to speak on this topic, which he feels strongly about and I feel strongly about. And I was honored to be invited and to chat with him and the others on that panel. And I think it's great to see Governor DeSantis focusing on these issues. And I'm very hopeful that legislation that's been proposed down in Florida will pass and that there will be some meaningful reform down in Florida. I think they could be a model state for some reforms, including pulling back on journalist shield laws, which place journalists outside of the normal third-party discovery that every other American citizen is subject to, changing statute limitations or allowing for recovery of attorney's fees and defamation cases. It just changes the economic incentives for filing these cases, which, look, it's against economic self-interest to make it easier to file these cases because then there are going to be <laughs> lots of the law firms that pop up and want to bring these cases. But I think it's good for the country because, you know, I keep coming back to when I think about these issues, we have such a beautifully formed government with this checks and balances between federalism and separation of powers at the federal level, that the way our government was structured, it creates a check on the power of each branch of government. And the media is supposed to be another such check on the governmental power. But my question is, what is the check on the media's power? What is it? And for two centuries and 150 years, however long it was, there was the risk of defamation liability until Sullivan was passed. And that is really the only check there is on the media. And I hope that the Dominion settlement has some impact and that the media, American media, takes note because that economic self-interest and slowing down, getting the story right rather than being first with the real risk and prospect of economic loss, I think is important to media accountability. Anyway, getting back to Governor DeSantis, so appeared on the panel. I'm hopeful that some legislation passes down to bring more accountability to the press. And let me just say, as you know, someone who's known Ron for a, a long time, I'm just thrilled for his success and Casey's success and what they're doing down in Florida. And yeah. So one last question before we go to the speed round and I bring back Tom. 
if this legislation gets passed or in another state legislation gets passed, changing the standard, and it goes up to the Supreme Court, what are your thoughts on the chances that Sullivan would be overruled? We know of two justices who, from their other writings, seem open to it. But do you really think you have five votes for getting rid of this very venerable precedent? It's a great question. Justice Kagan, before she was a justice, also wrote on these topics and as an academic had expressed some skepticism over the Sullivan standard. Who knows with Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, they've not written on this. Who knows whether you have it or not? I'm probably not the best Supreme Court watcher to be opining on whether we have the votes or not. But I'm hopeful that particularly given what the justices, Justice Alito, Justice Kavanaugh, and others have been through their confirmation processes and the defamation that they have been victim to, that that will impact their views of whether Sullivan is the right standard. Because again, it's not a constitutional decision. It's a policy-made decision. And Hopefully, they're not going to come out and support bad policy that was enacted back in the 60s. So again, I'm so grateful to both of you. I know we've run a little over the time allotted, but I'm just so grateful. And the conversation's been fascinating, so I blame it on that. Now, onto the speed round. Four questions that I ask of all my guests, and they're all standard. So I'm going to go with Tom first. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? Me personally, I think there's a lot of aspects of the practice of law that are unrelated to getting a determination on the merits. There's a lot of, you know, posturing and busy work that don't really advance getting to a final determination on the merits. It drives up costs. It takes lawyers time and bandwidth away from higher value add things. And so, you know, some of the courts that have these rocket docket systems and arbitration where they kind of peel away a lot of that because there's no time for it, I think are really on the right track. I would say as a sort of a secondary example that's particular to our practice area, you know, we are very blessed and fortunate that we have, you know, very high net worth clients and corporate clients who can afford to pay our rates and retainers and that sort of thing. But I do think it's unfortunate that because of all these obstacles, including the New York Times versus Sullivan standard and all the burdens that it imposes on a defamation plaintiff who is frequently litigating against a corporate media outlet that is insured, right? Unfortunately, defamation is now a remedy that's reserved for very high net worth folks and companies. And, you know, that as just as an access to justice matter is something that I think we should change. That's a fair point. Second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? I would want to be the head of the security detail for my very glamorous and talented wife as she travels around <laughs> the country and is a lawyer, but I already get to do that. So I get <laughs> that's not happening. It's not happening. He's not retiring. I always like to joke that when I retire, that's going to be my job is her security detail. But it's a lot of fun. We love traveling around the country together. and We love meeting with clients together. And if I couldn't be a lawyer, or I wasn't a lawyer, I would still want to travel with Libby and be on her security detail. And, <laughs> you know, paparazzi way. My husband is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember Libby and I were on a panel, maybe at Fordham Law years ago, and I think you were in the audience, Tom. So it was sort of like you were her protector. But <laughs> my third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Well, I think we've already covered this. We told you that we have five kids. We have a crisis management practice. 
And we have clients in every time zone in the world. So the answer is not very much. But one of the many benefits that Libby has brought to my life is she goes to bed early. And so I do get more sleep in my life because of Libby. I probably get six, six or so hours a night, all told. But, you know, when we're on trial, that number shrinks to three. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Six is not great, but okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it seems obviously you're succeeding, notwithstanding. My final question is any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? The one thing that I fell victim to in my career early on was this sort of very myopic mindset that the firm that I started my career at needed to be the place that I would end my career at. I think that mindset is less common now than it was when I was starting at Kirkland. But I also think that what I call the career choice that you make coming right out of law school. And I had the benefit of having this amazing big law offer to go to, and Libby did as well. It's very hard to say no to that. And I call it the mom and dad problem. You know, How do you explain to mom and dad that you've got this amazing big name law firm that wants to pay you crazy money to come work for them? And how do you turn that down to go to maybe a boutique practice that has really deeply entrenched subject matter expertise that goes to trial more often that gives people these great experiences earlier on in their career than you would get at big law? You know, how do you do that? And I would just, I guess I would say to listeners, be open to the alternate path that if you're fortunate enough to have a big law offer, that it doesn't have to be the only way. And that there are a lot of really terrific opportunities out there to start your law practice in a boutique firm where you're going to get better work, better opportunities, better experience, and much more quickly advanced than you would at big law. And it's a very hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do is to say no to that offer. But I think if I had to do it all over again, I would certainly have looked at that more closely. Wise words. And if you look at the roster of my guests on this podcast, I think I've interviewed more lawyers from boutiques than large firms, actually, because there are some amazing boutiques out there. I've talked to you both, of course, and Paul Clement and Robbie Kaplan and Steve Molo. And really, it's just been an amazing universe of talent. So Libby, turning to you, what do you like the least about the law? I suppose my answers are going to be relatively similar to Tom's. I hate how long it takes a case to get to trial that old adage, justice delayed is justice denied. It's particularly true and acute in matters of reputation. And so if I had my way, cases would not go on two, three, four, five years in litigation. And so anything that we could do to streamline litigation and discovery disputes and interlocutory appeals and things that, that delay adjudicating on the merits, I think is really detrimental to seeking and adjudicating a matter and seeking justice. And I think your point, as you allude to, applies very strongly in the reputation context, because it's very hard to get a prior restraint on a media outlet. And if you're being defamed while some cases dragging out, as we saw in the case of Dominion, the harm can be hard to recover from. Second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? <laughs> Well, I'm wondering if I've gotten fired, David. Like, are you <laughs> pushing me out of my firm? No, I mean, I guess my question back, is there something beyond the law? I mean, <laughs> I've wanted to be a lawyer since as long as I can remember. So it's hard to even imagine what that would be. Tom's a pilot, so I suppose I could be his stewardess or <laughs> co-pilot. I don't know. I don't know how to fly, so... <laughs> But no, I'm very happy in the law. So good. I'm going to be making a career change anytime soon. 
Fair enough. My third question, how much sleep do you get each night? Yeah, not much. I do try to get to bed early, but I'm also quite an early riser. So if I'm in bed at, you know, 10 or 1030, I'm usually up by five. So I don't, you do the math, six hours. <laughs> yep. Hopefully seven. <laughs> Sounds like you're both roughly on the same page. And I guess my last question, any final words of wisdom, whether life advice or career advice for my listeners? Yeah, you know, going into big law provides a lot of training opportunities that is hard to acquire at a boutique. But I just remember putting myself back to non-equity partner at Kirkland days where, you know, allowing somebody else to make career choices for me was so emotionally draining. And so my biggest advice to those who find themselves in that circumstance and looking around as a non-equity partner without a big book of business or, you know, questioning whether they have a career and a future at the place they're at. Don't let somebody else decide your career for you. Be bold, be brave, go and forge your own path, even if it's the path that's less traveled, you know, taking a risk. You may fail spectacularly, but you may succeed spectacularly. And for us, for Tom and me, it's really just been, you know, a I don't know, a Cinderella story or a, you know, come true. a dream come true to get to do this practice together. And if I had to go back and do it all over again, my only regret is I would have done it a bit sooner. Well, your record certainly speaks for your choices. You've been phenomenally successful for your clients and for yourselves. So again, Libby, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Congratulations on the big win and good luck, although not too much good luck in you know, reducing protections for us journalists. Good luck in the years ahead. Well, just don't defame any of our clients, David. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, hopefully, you know, our friendship here will conflict you out from representing (laughs) anyone who goes after me. I mean, I'm very careful. I don't defame anybody. But (laughs) anyway, thank you again. This has been so much fun. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for having us on. Thanks so much to Libby and Tom for joining me. Congratulations again to them on the giant Dominion settlement, as well as the phenomenal success of their firm. Would you like to launch the next Claire Lock? Reach out to NextFirm, the sponsor of this podcast. They have helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear one week from now, on or about Wednesday, May 3. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.